everybody welcome back to 80s high the last podcast on the internet not entirely written and performed by chat gpt we're your hosts i'm ben and i am chris i am not a robot (laughs) (laughs) when this is 80s high wait dude that's that robot from uh like rocky that serves them drinks rocky gets a little robot oh what was that robot and i should have done the vicky robot from small wonder Oh my god, that was like, great. Vacuum under the sofa, and she picks the sofa up in one hand <laughs> as she runs the vacuum underneath it. Oh my gosh, that show. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if we ever have our detention episodes, we gotta come back and do Small Wonder. I'm very curious. I, I'll be honest with you. We talk about that show so much like off air, I feel like. I don't know if we've mentioned it yes. before. It's a really weird show. Small Wonder. Oh my goodness. It's a big wonder we have not covered Small Wonder yet. <laughs> I gang, class of 80s high, listeners who've stumbled randomly into our classroom, it's great to be back with you again. Uh, I know we're a little off the rails already with ChatGPT, but hey, we are the preeminent internet 80s pop culture variety podcast where we talk about the best <laughs> movies, music, cartoons, toys, and more from the 80s. And we've got a really good topic tonight. For many of our seasons, we've sort of strayed away from the most popular and well-known but we're swinging for the fences this week with a, with a pretty big movie property from Is the 80s. I'm excited. Is this the most popular and well-known 80s movie? Is it? No, no. Okay, I was like, where are you going with this, Buster? I don't. <laughs> no, I'm Dave. This is not. But you know, as we'll as we'll get to it, this movie wasn't necessarily huge when it came out, and then it sort of became kind of like a cult classic, cult big following. deal yeah. later on. Yeah. So I'm stoked to get into it. You know, it's been a rapid fire week. I don't have a lot of like hot '80s action going on this week. I did trip and fall into starting to watch 1985's Once Bitten which stars a 23-year-old Jim Carrey. It's like a vampire comedy. Really? I'd never heard of this. It's actually, I'm like 20 minutes in, half an hour in maybe. It's actually pretty funny so far. But Jim Carrey so far plays like the straight man. He's not he's not as wacky in living color James Carey yet. Wow. Okay. Okay. Once bitten. I, I haven't finished it yet, but so far I definitely want to keep watching it. I'm very intrigued. It's like uh, Leslie Nielsen used to do all those like serious drama, like yes! kind of dramatic roles, yes! and then just became Frank Drebin, Police Squad. <laughs> so good. <laughs> That's right. Um, and of course, as you know, you were here last weekend. We finally, for the first time in many years, brought back our annual movie marathon party yeah. uh, in person, which was really exciting. And there was a little bit of 80s, almost. I know we're bleeding the lines here, but we did watch 1979's The Muppet Movie, which was the first feature Muppet film. I always say you can watch 70s properties in the 80s, so it counts. We it did counts. Alien. We got zero hate mail for doing the movie Alien. It's also true. a 79 movie. I think we're in the clear. Who's going to argue? It's it's the Muppet movie. Come on. No one. But now I need now I need a puppet. I need, I need the chest bursting scene, but Kermit comes out and says like... <laughs> 
<laughs> has Hello, has nobody made Alien as a Muppet movie? Come on already. Come on. Wait, I always love this. This is always a fun game. Okay. So it's Alien, the Muppet movie, but there's one human cast member. Mm. Who's the human in Alien, but everyone else are Muppets? I mean, the low-hanging fruit is Sigourney, but I sure. kind of want Sigourney to be a puppet. Uh, David Bowie, maybe? No, I don't know. Oh, no, he's already done that. Ooh. Darn it. He can't Ooh. get typecast. What if David Bowie plays the cat, Jonesy? Like, in full, like, cat <laughs> CG costume, but and then everyone else are Muppets. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I'm watching this movie. Yeah, but the cat has to be like from the show Cats, like the Broadway production <laughs> of Cats. He looks like those kind of nightmare cats. Oh, my goodness. Right. We've right. gone off the rails big time. We're but, way off the rails. Oh, my gosh. I'm, I mean, I'm here for all of these ideas. And I will say Spaceballs came the closest to having alien oh, Muppet yeah. treatment. That was the closest. That's true. Because, okay, this is a really long about way. But that alien pops out and sings, hello, my baby, yeah. hello, money, which is a classic Looney Tunes cartoon of a bullfrog singing and dancing that song, Kermit's a Frog. I brought it all the way around. Da, 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 da. And I'm sure at some point, Kermit the Frog wore a straw hat. Those little like had to straw have. hat things. So, what are those, you like know? a seersucker suit yeah. and a little ragtime hat? Yeah. Well, that's a great word to pull out of the memory bank. Seersucker. seersucker? You, don't, yeah. you don't hear that every day. It's you like do not hear that. Conestoga wagon. Like, who says that? That's great. <laughs> Someone just got really excited because we helped them fill out their bingo card for the day. <laughs> uh, look, you might think Homeroom is way off topic right now as we meander and wander into random encounters with pop culture. Ooh. But it is perfectly on theme for this week's movie. We didn't plan that. That wasn't a planned no. meander. That no. was a, an impromptu meander. We we found ourselves dropped into a mystical world and <laughs> uh, the labyrinth of discussion before us. I do hope I can steer you in one direction before we go to history class, though, Benjamin. Oh, please. Which way? Our morning announcements, of course. But of course. Attention, 80s high. I'm Greg, here to share today's homeroom announcements. Don't break the chain letter. Make sure to follow the 80s High podcast on Instagram. Today's lunch menu will be red slop with Kool-Aid. And for your mental health, please do not ask the lunch ladies what's in it. If you're loving 80s High, consider supporting the show by dropping a rad review, or rating on Apple, telling a classmate to tune in, or even chipping in a few dollars at ko-fi.com. It sounds like coffee, or coffee if you're a New Yorker, but it's spelled K-O-F-I dot com. After school today, with the full moon being out, the biking club will be attempting to fly again. All those interested with two wheels and small extraterrestrials meet near the gym at 8 p.m. Be sure to come out for the sports ball game on Friday when the Fighting Mogwais take on the Goonies. Thank you, and have a rad-tastical day. Go Mogwais! Okay, I'm already excited for lunch, but I know I have to get through this ginormous labyrinth to get to lunch. So, Benjamin, where were we off to after homeroom? Well, this adorable little blue worm sitting on the wall is telling us to head on down to history class. He seems trustworthy. Let's follow. I've never had a worm lie to me before. So Chris and I, three times on our way down, wished to be a part of a podcast about an 80s movie. Yeah. 
The windows blew open, a snow owl flew in, and an 80s rocker granted us our wish. But this is going to be the longest episode of 80s I ever. We have 13 hours to tell you the story of this property before we're in trouble, before we don't get out of here. I was going to say, I clicked my heels and said, there's no place like home. You said Beetlejuice three times. Who knows where we landed? We're just Bloody Mary, bloody Mary. That's just wild. Okay. What are we talking about today, Ben? What oh, is today's so topic? Getting into it. Today's topic is the 1986 musical fantasy film Labyrinth, directed mm. by Jim Henson mm. with George Lucas as mm. the executive producer. Now, I was thrilled for this topic pick because I think years ago, eons ago, as you and I graduated from 70s junior high into 80s high, I think you told me you've never seen Labyrinth before. Never. But now you have. Now I can't say never. <laughs> You're always good at the overviews. Do you want to do the overview or shall I continue down this winding brick road? Do you want my salty interpretation a la Neverending Story or do you want a rather faithful but mildly cheeky version? If you could give me a Hoggle-esque overviews, <laughs> someone who's just un unhappy with everything, go for it. This movie starts off with a, a whiny teenager who's very angsty. Oh my goodness. And she's mildly inconvenienced by her <laughs> father and stepmother and then proceeds to wish her terrified baby brother screaming and crying, clearly oh in pain and turmoil God. of some kind, basically wish him away to goblins. That's what she does. During a lightning storm, a thunderstorm, everybody, crash, oh, bang, no. boom. She's passively, aggressively yelling at this kid, and then he disappears. This kid cries for like a solid three minutes, disappears, yeah. and then she's like, what on earth happened? And then we find out she has been magically transported, as has her little stepbrother, her young wee little tyke stepbrother, oh. to this magical land where she is given, as Ben mentioned earlier, a 13-hour countdown to rescue him before he is forever in the clutches of the Goblin King. Which is probably played by a, a very expectable, normal fantasy film actor, right? You know, it's one of those by-the-book casts, you know, it's it's <laughs> one of those you're like, well, obviously this is the person. David Duh. Bowie, of course, your first David and only pick. Bowie! And then our um, hero, sure, protagonist, of course, Sarah now has to go on this journey to rescue her little uh, stepbrother, her little half-brother. I'm saying stepbrother. It's half-brother. Yes. Toby. And she encounters all sorts of delightful creatures slash puppets along the way and some really scary weird ones. And there's a lot of odd undertones. And can she get there in time or does he become the goblin prince? We don't know until the end of the movie. Which thankfully is not 13 hours long. <laughs> which, which thankfully is not. That was a great overview. Thank you. You too, you stumbled for a second, but you did remember the baby's name is Toby, as did all of our class of 80s high, who oh. we asked, do you remember the name of the baby? Okay. So this is great. So before we really get into the, the goblins and orcs of this story, class of 80s high, listen carefully. We're talking to you right now. This week, this podcast is going to be the first time we do a giveaway. So in each class in this episode, I'm going to give you one third 
of how you get to enter this giveaway. And we're actually giving away something really, really awesome. So you have to listen to the whole show, find where we give you the the hints, just like a labyrinth, uh, and you'll be able to get it. But we're really excited. So we're going to get into this now. We're going to make you listen to this whole freaking show. No (laughs) skipsies. Do your homeworks. So, okay. So I know this is a huge Jim Henson production, but I want to take a step back because Labyrinth actually starts really with Brian Froud. Yes. We know Henson directed it. Terry Jones of Monty Python wrote this, mm. which like I'm, I, there's like a whole thing I really want to get into about like a Monty Python brain behind this movie. But the art, the world comes from Brian Froud. So Froud's born in Winchester in 1947, only child, grows up in a rural area, moves to Kent, uh, and he enrolled to be a painter in the Maidstone College of Art, where he graduated first class honors. He was a commercial illustrator in Soho for a little bit before moving to Chagford. And then in like the mid-70s, he illustrated four books by children's author Margaret Mayhe and uh, a book called Are All the Giants Dead? Question mark by Mary Norton, which fair question. I would like answers. I've not seen any, but I can't say they're not somewhere <laughs> else hidden. Yeah, we don't know. I was actually exposed to Froud at a really young age. I don't know why, but in our house, we had his most popular book, which is called Fairies. Came out in 1978, and it's just like his, it's sort of like Dinotopia-style artwork. Like this beautiful, whimsical painting, but sometimes they're half-sketches of Mm. just like the fairy, fantastical world. According to Wired Magazine, Froud is, quote, one of the most preeminent visualizers of the world of fairy and folktale. It's really good art. All right. And now, listener, it's time for your first of three labyrinth clues on how to get our (laughs) giveaway. Our giveaway is actually another one of Brian Froud's books called Brian Froud's Fairies Tales with Brian and Wendy Froud. They did it together. It is a gigantic, gorgeous coffee table book that has all this amazing of his artwork in it. Uh, We actually contacted the publisher that we were doing the show and they sent us a copy to give away to you, our fair listener. And it's a really fun book. It's all these different uh, fantasy and folklore tales, but told from the perspective of fairies, Hmm. not of people. So... Your first of three steps is follow us on Instagram. All right. Step one. And you already know how to follow us on Instagram. First off, you probably know what Instagram is. You know how to follow people. It's really simple. But also, we gave you all the details in our morning announcements. That's right. The homework was done for you. All you had to do is copy off of us. Just copy. Just Just look over our shoulders and copy. Uh, It's perfect. So... Froud, Henson, and Frank Oz collaborated in 1982 on the film The Dark Crystal. Have you ever seen The Dark Crystal? So we've talked about this before during Fraggle Rock, I believe. I have not. I have also not seen that. Probably saying the same thing I said during Fraggle Rock. This is the thickest, densest fantasy film I've ever seen in my life. If you really love fantasy, The Dark Crystal is your mecca. This is the place you gotta be. But it's dark. It's heavy. And afterward, Henson and Froud, they wanted to do something lighter, a little bit of comedy, but also keep it in like the fantasy realm. I thought that was really fun. As early as 1982, Henson started scribbling in his notebook things like The Labyrinth, The Maze, The Labyrinth Twist, and The Tale of the Labyrinth. For some reason, Froud was super into goblins at the time, probably because he had already put out his fairies book. And he said how this whole thing started, and we'll put this image up on Instagram this week, but he just had this vision in his head of a baby surrounded by goblins. Okay. Just that visual image is where this whole story began, and Froud sketched that out. And that's sort of, um, you know, like early in the movie when Sarah is starting to like summon the Goblin King, she's saying the stuff. Yeah. And there's all the little goblins who are like, shh, listen. And they're all like in a little tight 
Yeah, shot. yeah, yeah, right. This image looks like that with Toby in the middle. That's what's going on. And that's how this all started. So this guy basically had a kid that kept him up all night and he wanted to wish this child of his away to a bunch of goblins. And he's like, wait a second. Yeah. I have an idea. Great. This crying little kid. <laughs> this will be great to be this more be cheerful. Perfect. This is how I can um, artistically express my personal frustrations. Yes. <laughs> Oh, very interesting. Here's the crazy part. So this is like if you believe in goblins and fairies or not right now. here, I'm not here to judge. Okay. Six months after he paints this painting, Froud's son, Toby, is born and looks just like the baby in the painting he had done six months prior. So he was like, yo, Henson, I want my baby to be the baby in this movie. And he is. Wait, so he basically drew... His child before his child was born? Yes. Clairvoyance, everybody. ESP. This is the magic. Now, in the early script, actually, Toby's name was Freddy. But uh, I don't know if you've ever been around any babies, but babies don't respond very well. So they had to rename the script to make it Toby, the actual baby's name, for him to respond on set. That's why the baby's name is Toby. So they get Terry Jones of Monty Python to write this. And I never knew that. I think that's awesome. Did you ever watch much Monty Python, Flying Circus, Life of Brian? I've seen some of it. I'm not like huge into Monty Python, but I've certainly seen, you know, some of the movies and some of the sketches. Yeah. Do you feel any spirit of Python or the verbiage in Labyrinth? No, not really. Maybe well, Okay, maybe one little small piece, but this piece, actually, I learned, I'm sure we'll talk about it, got its inspiration from something completely different. Oh, yeah. So there's one little thing that I might have said yes to, but knowing that the inspiration didn't come from that. mm, Right. No, not really. I don't think so. Do you? Maybe it's just because it's so British. There's so many British characters. Oh, (laughs) that's a- Maybe I'm oversimplifying. That's a good point. But like the little little worm with the scarf and some of like the pun play, like you say a word, but it means something else feels a little- I could see that. A little bit. Okay, fair enough. And really how this came about is because Jim Henson really liked Monty Python. And actually, John Cleese had been on The Muppet Show as a guest, and that's how they knew each other. So I I love where Terry gets the story for this. So children's author Dennis Lee was originally hired in 1983 to come up with the novella that would become the script for Labyrinth. So when Terry Jones got hired, he got a hold of Dennis Lee's novella, and he read it, and he's like, I don't. I can't do a good Terry Jones. Oi, this is rubbish. This is a rubbish novella. Henson did one of your Muppets write this? Are you a Muppet? Uh, no, he didn't like it. And can't, instead, what he did is he just asked for a stack of Brian Froud's drawings. And he just wanted to look at Froud's art to get inspired for the story. Basically, he would find a picture he loved that Brian Froud drew. And he would write a scene, an encounter, just based on that drawing. So it's very episodic, sort of like the Odyssey, where like, here's a here's an encounter, one single concentrated, isolated event, and then you move on to the next isolated event. That's where the story comes from. That makes a lot of sense. It really does. So Terry gets the credit for the screenplay, but the shooting script was actually collaborated between Henson, George Lucas, Laura Phillips, and Elaine May. Now you write a lot in your work. In your professional career, you do a lot of writing. For anything you're going to publish and put out, Mr. Christopher, how many drafts do you go through? Oh, first one's clean, done, no (laughs) edits. What are you talking about? (laughs) I mean, you know, it kind of depends on a lot of different factors, but I think it's fair to say, you know, two, three minimal. 
right? That's reasonable. You got other stuff to do. I mean, a script is going to be a lot more. What are we? What are we talking about here? What are you leading into? We're talking thirteen. No, forty-eight drafts. I'm just going to guess uh, wildly. Kind of like in the middle, a little bit. There were twenty-five different versions of the script for Labyrinth. That's a lot. That is a lot. Which they were just, you know, they're coming off Dark Crystal. They don't want it so heavy. Then David Bowie gets involved and he's got requests. So it's all this balance of like tension, humor, a little bit of horror, a little bit of thriller, musical numbers. Like how how many people versus puppets should be in every scene? It's like a whole thing. So what influenced this story besides all this? So Henson was once quoted saying, I think what we're trying to do with this film is kind of harken back to a lot of those classic fantasy adventures that a young girl goes to. The Wizard of Oz, Alice in Wonderland, and the works of Maurice Sendak. I don't mind comparisons. It's not like we're trying to outdo them. We're simply related. Well, funny you should mention Maurice Sendak because apparently there's a bit of a legal dispute. Did you learn about this? No, dive in. So just a small little tangent here, but Maurice claimed that they ripped off his book outside over there. Now, most of us probably know his work Where the Wild Things Are. Of course. Interestingly enough, that book has a character on the cover. Ludo looks a little bit like that character. Oh, snap! Apparently also, Where the Wild Things Are makes like a brief cameo in the movie. Like the book is on the shelf with Wizard of Oz and some of the other ones you've mentioned, right? Again, kind of a nod to these were inspirations. But Maurice thinks they went a little bit too far because outside over there is apparently about a young girl who must watch her little sister and her sister is kidnapped from her crib by goblins. And she has to cross over to a magical land to rescue her. Sound familiar? Oh my God. He was not happy about that. I don't think it went through, but there's a little bit of behind the scenes drama where he's like, you've gone from homage to cut and paste and cease and desist, Mr. Henson. Wow. Good find. I thought that was very fascinating, but uh, man. I did see that they eventually settled out of court. And there is an end credit that's added to the film that says, quote, Jim Henson acknowledges his debt to the works of Maurice Sendak, end quote. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That is the sort of compromise they came up with. Well, as you said, like earlier in the film, when they're establishing Sarah's bedroom, all the influences for the movie are kind of like shoved in there. Like Sendak's two major books are on the bookshelf and Alice in Wonderland, Wizard of Oz, Grimm's Fairy Tales. Oh, wait, was Outside Over There also on the shelf with Where the Wild Things Are? Oh, wow. Yeah, they're all up there. Okay, so it's even more direct of a... (laughs) Right. Pretty intense. All right. Well, Um, that credit, I mean, probably very well deserved for Mr. Sendak. Like, hello. Yes. Right. Okay. Um, so Froud says he came up with the Goblin King, that it's, quote, uh, the romantic figures of Heathcliff in Wuthering Heights and a brooding Rochester from Jane Eyre and the Scarlet Pimpernel. And then the costumes are supposed to obviously be very eclectic for uh, Mr. David Bowie. Uh, but he said actually Marlon Brando's leather jacket from The Wild One mixed with Kabuki theater. That's how he came up with David Bowie's costumes. Here's the thing, though. This is one of my favorite inspirational tidbits for this whole episode. Okay. There is a famous back and forth line that introduces probably the most famous song. Will you just entertain me for a second and and do this exchange with me? 
You remind me of the babe. What babe? The babe with power. What power? The power of voodoo. Who do? You do. Do what? Remind me of the babe. (laughs) So like after this movie came out, that's what everybody said. And it turns out that exchange is lifted straight out of the 1947 film, The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer. And it's an exchange between Cary Grant and Shirley Temple. Okay, so this was the inspiration I was mentioning earlier, where I was like, I could see the kind of witty back and forth. Maybe that was the Monty Python influence. But then I learned that this came from Cary Grant and Shirley Temple. Of course, we always talk about how we love the transatlantic accent. So like this scene is like, I mean, come on, Cary Grant, Shirley Temple, what's more transatlantic than those two? Oh my God. So I did did find the YouTube clip. So if we could, I would love if we could just drop that exchange real fast in here so you can hear it. Hey, you remind me of a man. What man? The man with the power. What power? The power of hoodoo. Hoodoo? You do. Do what? Remind me of a man. What man? The man with the power. Good morning. Hmm? Greetings, greetings. Are you out of your mind? Uh, what, what? It's so weird for me to hear that 40 years before this movie came out, coming out of Cary Grant and Shirley Temple. I thought that was awesome. And once again, this is not a nod. This is a very direct take from that. And they just change one word. Instead of you remind me of a man, it's you remind me of the babe. Right. It's so good. I loved that. One last thing about that movie, too. Talking about story influences. The story of The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer is about a teenager's crush on an older man. Oh, And I'm no. just saying, there's a little dance scene between uh, Sarah and the Kubrickin. Oh, it's a little baby. So, God. a lot of pick up and lift from other stuff there. Yeah, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, yikes almighty. Oh, my gosh. You're, this is going to be a complicated contemporary culture math class. Um, you remind me of the man. What man? The man with the restraining order. What restraining order? <laughs> 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 oh, that was good. That was real good. Oh, so I know this seems a little obvious for my, for our Gen X and millennial listeners, but some people might not know how on the nose this reference is, but there's a number late in the movie where Sarah is trying to retrieve Toby from all these upside down and sideways staircases and David Bowie singing to her. And that is based on a painting by Dutch artist M.C. Escher. Many mm-hmm. of us have heard Escher's, of course, his famous lithograph relativity. And this scene is kind of a direct lift out of that painting. It's a well done scene. It looks great. Yeah, it was very good. And that scene, I mean, we don't need to get to the technicals of every scene because there are a lot of incredible practical effects and shooting techniques in this movie. Yeah. But like shooting that scene is a technical marvel. The stuff they pulled off to do the Escher scene is actually very cool. Right. So let's talk about the main central cast. Okay. And I want to go through all 98 puppets that appear in this movie. So this is just the really, the the, the tightly most important ones. Number 62. All right. Goblin number nine. Number 62. Okay. All right. What do we got? we talked a little bit about Toby, David Frown son who plays the baby but of course we have made reference to uh what one might call breathtakingly entitled uh, a squeaky wheel of dissatisfaction how did you describe sarah <laughs> i think i called her was it whiny and angsty is maybe the words i used that's right sarah our protagonist mm-hmm. heroine is even kind of a stretch so i'll go with the protagonist sure. but played by a very young jennifer Connolly. that's right who uh, Henson said the minute she walked in the door, he knew it was going to be her, that she was perfect. And Henson loved working with her. He said, you know, she was bright. She was intelligent. She took direction very well. Uh, And from what I saw in the making of documentary, she was also happy to nearly die 700 times a day on this set, which was an insane set of practical effects and stunts. 
I will say, I mean, as much as we're ragging on the character, it has nothing to do with her performance, I don't think. Right. It's no, I think she about, performed yeah. what was written exactly. perfectly. Yeah, you performed to the material. But anyway. Any insights on Sarah we should know was it slash Jennifer Connelly at the time? Well, you know, I love my casting alts for these movies because all of these 80s-tastic names show up. So do you know anyone else who is in consideration for this role? Or do you have any wild guesses? Ooh. And these names have come up before in other shows. I know that's like kind of a stretch, but I mean, these are gettable, maybe one or two you could get off the top of your head. Who plays the babysitter in Adventures in Babysitting? That's a great pick. It's not her. That's Elizabeth Shue. Elizabeth Shue. I did not have her name. I don't believe she's being considered. Okay. Uh, and my other guess would be, and I know it's not really a guess because I know this has got to be it. It's got to be right. Leah Thompson. Oh, another great guest, but not, I don't have Leah either. Dang it. Okay, who was it? Who'd we get? Sarah Jessica Parker. Oh, no way. Sarah Jessica Parker for this. I so had she no was idea. in consideration. Yasmin Bleeth, which was a name I remembered, what? but didn't remember why. She was in no Baywatch way. later on, which is hilarious. Yeah. Here's a wild one. And I thought she was maybe older. Helena Bottom Carter? Really? Apparently so. I didn't know this was a Tim Burton film. Wild, right? Uh, Laura Dern. Oh, no way. A little Jurassic Park early action. Okay. Yeah. Marissa Tomei, Ali Sheedy, and Mia Sara, which I had to look her up. She plays Sloane in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Oh, sure. Yeah, totally. I yeah. could have seen that. That yeah, could have yeah, worked. Yeah. And as I understand, nearly cast in the role was Jane Krakowski, who plays Jenna, most famously on 30 Rock. Oh, totally. Really crazy, but apparently she was very close to being cast as Sarah. Wow. Um, so a lot of like, so different. big names uh, up for the role, as is usual with a lot of these movies, but that was wild. So the other main human, besides Toby and Sarah, of course, is Jareth, the mm, Goblin King. Indeed. And Jim Henson said he always knew that he wanted a rock star to play the role of Jareth, but I'm assuming that David Bowie wasn't the only name on the docket. Not, but also, this is the weird thing. It's funny Henson says that, because apparently the original idea was that Jareth was going to be a puppet. No! I mean, obviously David Bowie, even with makeup and a, uh, a juicy little hairdo, does not look anything like a goblin. He looks like a man. So apparently he was going to be a puppet, and then the idea was to cast somebody in the role, and... Apparently a first choice, Michael Jackson. Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. But he turned it down. Apparently he was working on an album at the time. And so they thought of a few others, apparently also in the running, Mick Jagger and Sting. Oh my God. <laughs> I could see Sting. I could see Sting. Speaking of the British influence, I could I see Sting him I bet Sting would have done it. real well. I could see yeah. it. But yeah, yeah, they ultimately, of course, David Bowie. So they get David Bowie while Bowie's in America during his 1983 tour because he had just done uh, Scary Monsters and Super Creeps, which is a very successful album. He was working on Let's Dance was going on. So uh, Henson gets a hold of him, shows him the dark crystal and Froud's art. And as Jim Henson tells the story, Bowie was so excited to do this because to Bowie doing the movie was actually a lot easier than Bowie's day job, performing, you know, touring the country and recording that this was actually sort of a vacation for Bowie as Bowie saw it. And he had a lot of fun with it, which is cool. 
I mean, it's probably more fun. It's probably way less like he's not the central. Like if you're a performer, I mean, Bowie's like front and center, right? Of all of his performances. Yeah. He's right. the performance. It's not like an ensemble band or whatever. So doing a movie like, oh, heck yeah, this is going to be great. And I get to sing a few songs. Why not? Right. And so after Henson lands Bowie, Henson's like, you know what? I actually really like David Bowie. I think we should have some musical numbers in this. And Terry Jones or Money Python is like, you're kidding me. No, this is not a musical movie. They hash it out. Henson's in charge. And so now we get a singing King Jareth throughout it. We sure do. And just like Prince, David Bowie writes the music for it to mm-hmm. perform. Now, he doesn't go as nuts as Prince did for 1989 Batman, writing like a million songs. <laughs> he writes like a handful. Okay. So with that, of course, we know every epic odyssey fantasy adventure has to have a a beloved little cast of heroes traveling together like lord of the rings or the hobbit a merry little band a ba- yeah a band of merry misfits and so the first one that sarah meets of course is hoggle who is a half dwarf half goblin is what froud says in the novel it says he's a gnome but froud came up with what hoggle is so froud wins so this is a really, really, really complicated puppet. So yeah. it's voiced by Henson's son, Brian Henson. There is a puppeteer inside Hoggle, Sherry Weiser, but it's crazy because she can't see anything. She can barely move her hands. The puppet, she had such small hands, they actually made like Freddy Krueger robot larger hands to go on top of her hands so uh, she could grab things. Wow. But they're so big, she can't reach them in her pocket in the movie to like pull things out. There's a lot of like funny little mess ups if you watch closely. Huh. But what's challenging is there are four people operating the Hoggle puppet, plus Sherry inside. Brian is voicing it. There's 18 different motors just for the face. And so in this making of documentary, you can watch like how tricky this is because Sherry inside Hoggle can't see anyone else and can barely hear. But when Brian says a question, I don't know, like, where are you going, Sarah? Think of all the things that happen to a real face when you pose a question like that. And all these different puppeteers have to do it right. And Sherry has to, like, cock her head to the side asking a question. It was insane trying to get the, the hoggle costume to work. I will say, I mean, the facial expressions were very impressive for that particular puppet. And uh, this reminded me a lot when we did Fraggle Rock. Remember the Gorgs, the big, I'll get you Fraggles. That was the same thing. Remember, like there was all the animatronics in the face. So it was like multiple people doing all of this coordinated work for one character. It's a lot. Totally nuts. Yeah. I love the little nugget here, too, that uh, it's written into the script that Hoggle groans a lot. Like, when you watch the movie, he goes like, bleh, yeah, bleh. And it's so the puppeteers could open the mouth really wide, so Sherry had a half second to get her bearings on the set of where she's oh. supposed to move next. I thought you were going to say so she could breathe. Like, that was her only opportunity. <laughs> suffocating <laughs> to death. It's like the guys who were in the Ninja Turtle costumes oh who were, like, sweating, sweating half their buckets. body weight every day. Oh, my God. Insane. Awful. And of course, now we all know the, one of the other merry band of uh, characters, the absolute Where the Wild Things Are ripoff, Ludo, <laughs> who's the big ogre-like furry uh, Chewbacca. Yeah. And so the costume weighs over 100 pounds, the original build. Wow. And Henson was like, you're going to kill someone, lighten it up. So they shaved 25 pounds off. It's 75 pounds suit. Okay. Ron, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, Ron Mweck and Rob Mills. They're roughly the same height and body weight, so they take turns all the time in Ludo. It's played by two because one dude could not be in that suit all day and like not go to the morgue at right. the end of the day. Right. Really good shout out. Charles Augins is the choreographer 
course, well known for dance magic that's going on. I think he's off camera throwing the baby up in the air over and over again. Oh my gosh! I don't know exactly how that all of, went down. Toby got a lot of like chucking about. Oh my! There's goodness. a lot of baby tossing in oh this movie. Goodness. What is that? Baby shaking. I'm like, oh my! So gosh. much baby shaking. Oh. Where's the VH1? Where's Toby now? Is Toby in a clinic? Is Toby in rehab? What's going on? I think we have to do some sort of like PSA for the lunch break in this episode. That's about like, don't shake babies. Don't throw right. them 20 feet in the air. Oh. Right. I want to be careful. I don't want to do what we've done in the past and name every freaking puppeteer. But just like anyone who was a notable puppeteer at the time was probably in this movie. Mm. I will say Kenny Baker and Warwick Davis are in it. They're probably best known for playing R2-D2 and Wicket in Star Wars. Uh, they're, They're some of the goblin core guys who run around. So let's get into the production. So Labyrinth is shot between April and September of 1985 on location in Upper Neck, Piermont, and Haverstraw, New York, and at Elstree Studios and West Wycombe Park in the United Kingdom. It filmed next door to Legend, you know, Legend with Tim Curry and a very young Tom Cruise. Okay. And during that filming, Brian Henson, Henson's son, meets Mia Sarah, who's the star of that movie, the, the damsel in distress, and gets a big crush on her. And Wait, two years Sloan later, from Ferris Bueller that we were talking about? Yes. The same person. Wait, what? They fall in love and they're married two years later. They met while doing Legend and Labyrinth. So she was going to be considered for this movie. Right. She's not in it, but she's in a movie that's filming next door to this movie and meets her future husband. Is that what you're telling me? Isn't that kind of sweet? Come what? on. That's so great. Holy crap. I love it. Speaking of romance, of course, we had Bowie, who was a very professional musician and wrote a lot of great music to set the mood. I was worried of the direction you were going because he is trying to romance. Right, romance is questionable. An underage young lady in this movie. Problematic at the very least. You threaded that needle. Let's talk about the music. (laughs) Bowie recorded five songs for Labyrinth Underground, Magic Dance, Chili Down, As the World Falls Down, and Within You. Okay. Did you go find any of the music videos? I did not. There are music videos for these songs. All of them? Not all of them. Steve Bannon produced music videos for Underground and As the World Falls Down. Underground is Bowie as a nightclub singer who sort of like stumbles upon the labyrinth. It's very Fraggle Rock where he like finds a hole in the nightclub and it leads to the labyrinth. Okay. Uh, And he encounters a lot of the characters in the film. As the World Falls Down is just sort of like interspliced clips from the movie. Okay. So let's talk about how they got the word out. Marketing, merchandising, merchandising. So a whole lot of stuff. You could get your plush Sir Didymus and Ludo. There was a board game. There was a computer game for the Apple II and the Commodore 64. And I actually looked this up and I tried to play it, honestly. And it's a lot like Maniac Mansion. It's like a text adventure. It's so funny you said that. I looked it up and I watched a video of it and I was like, this has Maniac Mansion vibes. Especially yeah. like graphically the like very first version of Maniac Mansion. Not like the Nintendo version that right, looked all glossy right, right, in comparison. Right. But yeah, I felt the same way because also there's like a dungeon that you could get thrown into if like that family catches you in their house. So totally, yeah. no, I didn't dig Actual in to vibes. see like if it was built on like the scum system. Oh. <laughs> there are a lot of scummy <laughs> goblins in it. I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's an exhibition that travels the country that shows a lot of the puppets and the characters. Hold on, you it didn't mention in... Labyrinth of Flamethrower. Was that a toy? Labyrinth of Flamethrower. <laughs> 
So good. There's a concurrent novelization of the movie that comes out at the same time by A.C.H. Smith. There's a picture book that goes around at the time, Labyrinth the Storybook by Louise Cacao and illustrations by Bruce McNally. Okay. There's a read-along storybook on those little, like, seven-inch records. Read by a Teddy Ruxpin doll? Yes, yeah, a creepy one. But even Marvel Comics does a three-issue comic book adaptation of Labyrinth. Yeah. Which comes out in 86, so it's great. So it opens uh, uh, June 27th, 1986. Premieres at the London Film Festival December 1st, 1986. So it opened in America first, and then it was like half a year later before it opened in Britain, where it was like largely written and in many ways produced. I thought that was kind of weird. I don't know why. I guess they don't have simultaneous worldwide releases like they do now. I guess not. I guess not. But uh, it opened at number eight at the U.S. box office with $3.5 million, which puts it behind that year, The Karate Kid Part 2. Back to School, Legal Eagles, Ruthless People, Running Scared, Top Gun, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, as you mentioned. Ferris Bueller. Also, like, yeah, Top Gun. Come on. That was number one. I think How we do all you know compete? That. How do you even? By the next weekend, it drops from eight to number 13. Oh, boy. After its run in America, it had only made back about half its $25 million budget. Eesh. Here's what goes nuts, though. Once you send it overseas, this movie slaps. Okay. It makes $9 million in Japan in the summer. Wow. In December, like I said, at the London Film Festival, it opens in Europe. Number one at the UK box office. I mean, you've got Bowie. It's written by Terry Jones. You've got this British invasion happening, and now it's coming back to the home turf, and everyone's stoked. Yeah. So it gets a total worldwide gross of over $34 million. That's like tenfold, yeah. It's pretty good. Roger Ebert says that the movie was made with infinite care and pains. But he only gave it two out of four stars. He says it never really comes alive. Uh, he says it was an arbitrary world. None of the events in it had any consequences. And it robs the film of any dramatic tension. Gene Siskel, always the voice of sunshiny forgiveness and love. Yeah, what do you have to say? He referred to it as an awful film with a pathetic story. Much too complicated plot with a visually ugly style. How'd you really feel, buddy? To quote, the sight of a baby in peril is one of the sleaziest gimmicks a film can employ to gain our attention, but Henson does it. Holy crap, Siskel. Barbs. Oh my goodness. Wow. So I'm not going to go through every review, but there's a lot of reviews out there. Jennifer Connelly playing Sarah, kind of both ways. Some people love it. Some people sort of echo some of the things we said about her when introducing her. And same with Bowie. Some people are like, we get it. It's cool. We see the vision. We like this. And a lot of people are like, what the snacks is David Bowie doing in this movie? This is ridiculous. Uh, like, <laughs> like Hal Lipper, I don't, I've lost his publication. Hal Lipper says, quote, Bowie foregoes acting, preferring to prance around his lair while staring solemnly into the camera. He's not exactly wooden. Plastic might be a more accurate description. Yowza, lambasted this movie was. It is is contentious and all these negative reviews come out and this is gonna crush you this is the last movie henson goes on to direct oh yeah it's the last feature film he does because the feedback was so negative but that's what the professional critics said but i want to know what you thought because it is fresh in your mind having just seen it and the only way to do that is to probably jump on this sheepdog and yes. ride it triumphantly down the hallway to chemistry class and really understand what different formulas created the eternal bog of stench. 
I give you permission to cross this bridge. Come on, Ambrosius, let's go! <laughs> Ambrosius? As you always like to open chemistry, Chris, dig real deep back into your life. When did you first encounter Labyrinth? So as best I could piece together, I mean, I certainly heard of the movie. I was aware of it, 100%. In more recent years, I knew about the tight David Bowie outfit. I knew about his general <laughs> look with the long, kind of spiky, very 80s-tastic hair, the eyeliner, right? The yes. wild costumes. Like, I knew that vision of him. And at some point, I had seen that M.C. Escher scene where they're, you know, coming in at different points yeah. of the Escher landscape, whatever you want to call it, with all the staircases. But beyond that, I will say, nothing even looked so familiar as it triggered a memory. Like, I didn't associate it, but when I saw one of the scenes or characters, I was like, oh, I know that. Like, it didn't make any other associations other Mm, than really just David Bowie's appearance. And again, the M.C. Escher scene, that's pretty much the only thing that struck a memory to me. So somehow I skated 44 years through life, never (laughs) really experiencing this movie. Which, if you listen to this podcast, you're like, yeah, Chris, it's practically everything. Why do you even get to co-host a show about the 80s? (laughs) Well, you know what? Sometimes it's about revisiting and finally visiting the things you like. So there it is. Look, we can't consume everything. We can't consume everything that was out there. Listen, I had to watch Ferris Bueller 79 times rather than watch 79 movies one time. So (laughs) sue me. Benjamin, though, how about you? Clearly, you had a connection to this movie at some point in your childhood because you picked it. So tell us that tale. No, totally. What I remember is like this was the penultimate fantasy movie as a kid. This was like fairies and Then what was the ultimate one? Oh, yeah. Well, that would have been The Dark Crystal, which was really creepy and weird. I saw Dark Crystal way too early. That gave me Dark Crystal is ultimate. This is penultimate. Okay. Penultimate. Okay. As a child, is what I what I thought. I mean, I definitely I remember being really terrified, even rewatching it now, uh, in Sarah's early room when all the little goblins are like scrambling around mm. behind stuff. When I was little, that was really scary because, like, when you're a kid yeah. going to bed, you're like, "What was that?" Out of the corner There's of your eye. There's a lot of stuff in this movie that, as a little kid, would be terrifying. Well, I'm absolutely. sure we'll talk about it. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And then, as an adult with children. Completely different terrifying things. Totally. So. <laughs> yes. Oh, I do want to talk. Yeah, I want to get to that thing. I had an observ- a thought about that. Oh. Um, but like, okay, okay, let's just get into it. We're here. We're here. Early terror. So one of the movies that scares me the most is The Witch. Have you seen The Witch? Surprising to nobody. No, I have not. It's not in the 80s, so I have no like all the cool oh, okay. director and year and stuff to tell you. But it's a scary movie. And in this movie, there's like this girl playing at a river. It's like um, colonial times in America. And she's playing with her baby brother by the stream. And she's closing her eyes and playing peekaboo. You're playing this game from her perception. Okay. And she puts her hands over her eyes. She opens it and the baby's gone. Okay. And it like starts this. I'm getting chills right now telling you the story. I thought that was just so simple and scary. And the same thing in this movie where like you hear Toby crying. Look, when a baby's that old and he's crying, he needs to poop. He's hungry or he's tired. That's it, Sarah. It's not that hard. Clean the diaper, feed him, or help him go to sleep. That's it. But the minute that baby just stops crying, that scares me in the rewatch already. Because mm. babies just don't stop crying, right? They but that's like, adult Ew. Ben, right? That's adult Ben, not as a kid. Little kid Ben was like, finally, that little, little shut up. Now we can get to the goblins. <laughs> that was my first like horror scene. Were there any other scenes that like 
you were like, this is very scary. I love that we're jumping into the horror scenes. This is hilarious. I love that that's how we're kicking it off. Let's just get into the horror. Let's just do it. I mean, as an adult, no, but I think the fireys would be very terrifying to children. This scene is so freaking weird. It's weird. The puppets themselves are kind of creepy looking, and then they're like taking their heads off. They're throwing them around at the end. They're like, hey, lady, give us your head. And there's like, what? And then the one jabs its eyeballs, and then like in a Beetlejuice kind of a way, has the eyeballs on his fingertips, drops them, and then jams it back in his face. It's a crazy scene. And I was looking at a YouTube video, and everyone was like, This terrified me as a kid. This mortified me as a kid. I couldn't watch this as a kid. I had nightmares as a kid. Like everybody was like, this scene was awful. And I could see it. As a movie build to kids, that was pretty intense. It's a terrifying scene. It's it's now it's a technically a really amazing scene. They they shoot it all with a computerized camera. And it was all shot on like a black velvet set. And each dude is like two puppeteers to make all right. the parts fly away from each other. Right. And then they just shoot that like matte background that you see in the movie alone with the camera, nobody else. And then they kind of smoosh it all together. So I mean, technically, it's actually a very coolly produced scene. But that scene, too, I remembered being like, this is terrifying. These dudes are trying to take her apart. Yeah. Their body parts fly all over, but they're like kind of helping her. Confusing scenes is really the name of the game here. Like, okay, in the beginning, Jareth comes in and he's supposed to be super scary in her bedroom. Like, I'm the Goblin King. Yeah. I'm just throwing out there. And like, I'm assuming there are a lot of teenagers who, if David Bowie showed up in their bedroom that night, (laughs) would have been pretty stoked. (laughs) He was a bit of a looker and pretty cool. I think a lot of people been like, heck yeah, David Bowie. But Sarah's terrified. But also he's like dressed like a vampire almost, like a sexy vampire from like a, you know, an Anne Rice novel. So it's basically like he shows up and you're like, oh, it's like Tom Cruise is a vampire. You're like, I'm here for my interview. Like, what is going on? Yeah, he doesn't look scary to me. He just looks fabulous. I don't know what the right word is. Fabulous is perfect. Yes. (laughs) But I mean, To me, the adult creepy thing is there is a grown, nearly 40-year-old man trying to catfish and groom an underage girl. Oh, my God. That's the terrifying part. And then she has a fever dream, a peach drug-induced fever dream, where she's dancing with them. And it's a little like the romance scene in a high school drama, but the horror is the girl is not dating a classmate. She's dating the teacher. And that's awful. (laughs) And you're like, wait, what movie am I watching right now? Is this a Lifetime movie where my boyfriend is my principal? Like, what is going on here? (laughs) So, like, when he's like, you remind me of the babe, the babe with power. I'm like, is he talking about the baby or the hot babe that he's pining for? Who, by the way, let's all remember, underage, very creepy. A thousand percent. A thousand percent. I mean, now, you know, on one hand... When you're coming of age, for many, many kids, your first crush is usually someone of fame and fortune, much your senior. It is a rock star of some kind. It's a model. It's a it's goblin a, king. A goblin. You know, whatever your <laughs> style is. Maybe a teacher at school, whatever your thing is. So, like, Sarah kind of being confused about David Bowie is like, that direction is okay, but Bowie also being interested? Like, Fair hey, come to my come to my dance party. Did you see my mask? Like, and then it gets a little weird. It gets a little weird. No, it's very weird. But no, you're right. Like, 
Okay, context. My girl, love that movie. Veda Saltenfuss is crushing over her teacher. Okay, yes. you're right. I think as a as a, a youngster pining for somebody who's older that you're like, oh, yeah. Okay, that's less creepy. The yeah. other way, 100% creepy. <laughs> yeah, this only works in one direction. That's the adult nightmare. Like, kids will <laughs> never pick up on that context. They're just no. like, there's creepy goblins hopping in and out of the crib and in the closet and like all that stuff. Like, it's the monsters under your bed. They're literally Absolutely. in her, you know, in Toby's bedroom. So we leave the bedroom. We hear the plot. Hey, I did your wish. Now you regret it. Come get your brother you hate. Whatever. We go to the labyrinth. I do have a question for you, like a real question, because it is fall and this opportunity might come up for some people. Okay. Have you, Christopher, ever done any mazes or labyrinths? And how did you feel about them? Oh, great question. I feel like I've been in haunted houses that were a little, I mean, Mm. certainly not like crazy labyrinth. But I feel like I've been in haunted houses like that. I've shockingly, growing up in the Midwest, never went to a corn maze, which no, what? is kind of crazy. But like, I liked doing haunted houses, haunted hay rides, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah. So like, I would, or like, I would go to a pumpkin patch and I was more interested in like the pumpkins than I was about going to do the corn maze. So I've done like light versions of corn mazes, but I must say very emphatically, a light version. Like this was not a thick corn maze where sure. like, you could truly get lost. It was like the little corns that you get in salads sometime. It was the small it corns. It was the baby corn big, maze. Yeah, the, yeah, the it baby was like corn a maze. Tom Hanks and big baby corn maze. Yeah. But no, I love good corn maze in the fall. I think they're really fun. Again, as I've said many times on this show, I could handle horror as a kid much better than I can as an adult. So I don't like doing them at nighttime now. That scares the bejesus out of me. I've also walked many a meditative labyrinth. I really like meditative labyrinths. It's sort of like uh, this giant, it almost looks like a flower. And there's a path you like walk in. Sorry, this is a moment of sincerity on this Jogi podcast. But you actually like walk very mindfully on this like big pattern in this circle. And it like helps you focus and get grounded. And they're actually really good. Is this a mental exercise or? So it's a good, actually... that's a good point. No, no, it's a, a real physical confused. thing you do. It's a real physical thing. There are these labyrinths. And they're not big. I mean, it's it's maybe, I don't know, a normal one's like 80 feet across. And it's a circle. And there's a pattern in it. There's no walls. And you like, I'll put, I'll put a picture on uh, Instagram this week. How do I not know what this thing is? I've never heard of this before. Where would I, you find such a thing? Where would such a thing might be? Uh, so you'll see these things sometimes in like royal gardens. Okay. Sometimes like retreat centers. Wait, are these the hedge them? mazes with the little no, fish no hedges. shooting water? Out? Okay. <laughs> I love that, though. That's very good. No, they're, like, just flat on the ground. It's called a labyrinth. And you, like, just walk this okay. winding path, and it's, like, a way to focus, calm down. It's a good stress that? reducer. Yeah. No fun wall worms, but they're, they're It's they're mindfulness, nice. right? Mindfulness. Just mindfulness. It's great. Um, how do you feel about the introduction to our first anti-hero, Hoggle? What's Hoggle doing when we meet him? What says child movie more than walking on a creepy old man taking a leak in a lake? <laughs> what the crap is happening? Ben, I have a question. Why is this scene in the movie? Why couldn't she have run into him gardening or trying to fix something or doing confidence exercises in a mirror? Hoggle's great. <laughs> Hoggle's wonderful. Everybody loves him. Like, why is he urinating again? I'm smart enough. I'm strong. <laughs> Doggone it. There's a people. There's a pervy angle to this movie, and that is a really creepy way to start yeah. off this magical world. It's a choice. 
It is a choice. It is a weird choice. It's also, he is gardening. You suggested gardening. He's spray killing fairies. Oh, that is true. Genociding fairies in the labyrinth. To be fair, they had seemed awful. They did. They were like bite, right? They like yeah, bite in the movie. They were yeah. jerk fairies. Who <laughs> You know, like there's ladybugs and then there's the invasive species, the little like poser, not really ladybugs. They're just like different kinds of beetles. And you're like, the real ladybugs are great. The other ones are jerks. Like it's kind of like that. Yeah, that's a great point. I do very much love the little wallworm, the little British blue haired, come inside and meet the missus. He's very sweet. That's a puppet I actually really like. I think very sweet. Very charming. I would love to have have the like on my desk, a little wallworm. He's very cute. Yes. Now, on my rewatch, I didn't realize the, like, flagship number of the movie happens pretty early on. Dance Magic. Okay, yes. It's, like, not that late. I thought it was, like, going to be a later, let's keep the big number till later. But it happens, like, pretty shortly after she gets to the Matrix. Right. I'm just going to throw out some quick hot facts. There are 48 different puppets in this scene, operated by 50 to 53 puppeteers. That's a lot. We did ask our class of 80s high if they could guess... And everybody, most everyone went for the biggest number, 102. I, you know, I, we, I, we throw you a curveball, it wasn't 102. And someone else guessed 75. Not quite. Nobody quite got it. But still, 48 is a lot of puppets. Yeah. And so the original was they were planning with just 22. And then when they got it on set, they're like, no, we need more puppets. So they doubled it. There's also 8 to 12 actors in costume in there, like Warwick Davis and other people who are on rigs flying around. This scene is insanely complicated. This is like in Gremlins where they they kept being like, we want more Gremlins. <laughs> no, Steven, no more Gremlins. And didn't the studio write to Steven that was like, there's too many Gremlins in this movie. Yeah, he's like, well, so then he's we'll like, just call it's it a people. movie called Gremlins. Yeah, he had a very snarky uh, reply to that. But yeah. So good. Let's see. I mean, you know, I'm going in order here. Are there, are there scenes, characters that jumped out to you as interesting? You're worth commentary? One of them that was my favorite scene, let's just talk about that. And I think it's pretty early on, uh, are the helping hands. I thought that was a very, Whoa, very yeah. well done scene. I loved the different ways they did the hand shapes to create the so face cool. and the mouth. It was like people who do the shadow characters and you're like, do you have 13 hands? How are you getting all of this nuance in a character? I have the cheap dog with like your thumb up. And then you just move your bottom and like, rawr, you know, that's my shit. <laughs> These people were doing amazing puppeteen work, basically, like only with their hands creating all these different faces. And they just kept doing it. And there was more and more. And I was like, that's really cool. I thought that was really awesome, but also terrifying because she falls down a pit of grabby hands. Many, many grabby hands. And they look like zombie hands, right? Yes. It's really creepy. But I just thought that was a really... Neat one. This is one of those scenes that was like, this teenager's about to die. She's on a 30-foot rig that moves her up and down this shaft and all these things. And it's actually, the documentary is very cool because you get to watch all the puppeteers playing with their hands trying to figure out how to make different faces. And you see oh, like- cool. You see these. You see the faces appear in rehearsal, and then they're on film, which is really cool. So there's 150 hands in this scene from 75 different performers who are wow. all in this shaft at the same time. But here, here, you know, to your point of like some weird, creepy messages that keep happening here. So now these 75 different performers are all going to, with their hands, guide teenage Jennifer Connelly 30 feet up and down vertically over and over again as they do the takes. Yeah. I'm just saying, it's, a, it's an incredible shot. But there's like some, again, weird stuff with Sarah that goes on in here. Yeah, exactly. 
Oh, there are these little monsters. So the goblins come in like when they're torturing Bluto. There's like little naked, angry hamsters on a stick that like oh, bite. right. As like a weapon. I what? remember that as a kid being creepy. What? That was yes. so weird. Yeah, that was an odd. There's some things in here where you're like, again, what fever dreams slash coke binge were you on when you made this child's movie? Granted, a lot of fairy tales are super dark, so this is not without precedent. But still... It's Henson. It's very yeah. It's very weird. Now a scene that was that was golden for me as a child. The hmm. moment of comedy gold in Labyrinth is the bog of eternal stench. Mm. This bubbling swamp that is just fart and burp noises. This is, is like their home version of the swamp of sorrows from Neverending Story. Right. Like, but ours are going to be made for eleven-year-old boys, and both are equally hilarious. No, but I mean, like, if you're a little kid watching the Bog of Stench and it's like, you're like, that's hilarious. But then when Ludo goes to run across the rocks because he's scared and it goes. Oh, yeah. That was like, I remember as a kid on that VHS, rewinding, playing, rewinding, playing, tears, laughter. I mean, that was the best. They knew their audience. They knew their audience. They knew what was going on. I, okay. I forgot this. I really wanted to ask you actually because I don't know. In this weird ballroom scene thing when she eats the poison fruit, is she just tripping the light fantastic and she's imagining this? Or like does biting the fruit take her to this weird masked what's that creepy Nicole Kidman Tom Cruise movie? Oh, eyes wide uh, shut. Eyes wide shut, this, yeah. This eyes wide shut party of the eighties where a teenager was let in. Like, is it real <laughs> or isn't she imagining it? I mean, is she? Is it real that she's in the labyrinth, or is she imagining it? So, like, there's multiple levels because we are inceptioning our way into the the dreamscape within the dreamscape, right? Yes. There was a scene that was deleted. I saw where Bowie was like the hand model. the The juggler was doing the like the ball movement stuff. Remember the they had like an actual juggler oh. do those scenes, right? Right. Yeah. So I was like, dang, David Bowie's talented. Not him. They had a a, a hand stand in from an actual juggler, Michael Motion, who's yes. got his arm through David Bowie's sleeve. Isn't that wild? But anyway, um, the scene that was cut is he was looking into those crystal balls and he was going, poppies, sleep, poppy. Oh, wait, that's Wizard of Oz. Never mind. No, wait. Another lift. It is technically another lift. There's a lot lifted. Oh, my God. God. The more we get into it. No, I I don't have a good answer to your question other than more inane observations. But nevertheless... um, I'm going to blame it on a poison fruit. Why not? Why not? Sure. Let's just okay. say that, you know. But again, to your point, maybe she was kind of like, I'm repulsed by the Goblin King. But also, he's wearing some tight pants right there. And he's oh. got some cracking eyeliner. So, I don't know. A girl's confused. We're not actually going to successfully get into the pants in contemporary culture, but we're going to oh talk boy. about the tight pants in contemporary oh culture. We're going to talk uh, about okay. it. Okay. We'll, we'll put a pin in those pants. So, okay. Speaking of things that you're really excited about, Ludo sings and can move rocks around. And I yeah. know you're always down for some hot lithovore action. Another rock control. Another moment. lithovore creature. We have a lot of rock or rock manipulating creatures. I'm here for it. It's amazing. <laughs> one of, unfortunately, one of like the most boring scenes for me, though, uh, is the most relevant to our, our podcast, which is the garbage dump. 
Yes. I get so bored in that whole sequence. I just find it very slow. Okay, so this is the one that I found intellectually interesting. Yes, go on. So you have this junk lady, and she's basically this puppet with like a mountain of just like junk tchotchkes crap on her back. Yeah. And apparently her name is Agnes, though they never say that, but I think there was some like lore background. Right. Yes. Anyway, so Agnes is trash lady. She's basic the tree is sheep. Is she like Marjorie the, the trash sheep? The tree is sheep. The tree is sheep is spoken. So yeah. Good. Um so this junk lady, you know, Sarah wakes up. I can't remember what happens, but she falls. Oh, it's when she comes down from her drug trip, right? Yes, yes, her 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 apple fantastic. So she, <laughs> so she wakes up and she's basically like where am I? She's in this trash heap. And this old lady is like, oh, don't you remember what you were actually looking for? And she's like, oh, yeah, Lancelot, her little like stuffed yeah, bear. Yeah. That's like kind of where she started off. So when the movie kind of does this thing where we're like, oh, yeah, that is what started it off. And you think she's going to send her in the right direction. She ends up back in her bedroom. And you're like, oh, she's broken the spell. But then like – Agnes comes in as like, oh, you forgot about this and you forgot about this toy. Remember this toy. And she's actually piling them on Sarah's back. Yes. Yeah. And right. I thought that was a really fascinating idea yeah. that she was trying to turn her into a junk lady. And they basically are saying like nostalgia. She's trying to drown her in nostalgia. Yeah, right? Which again, to your point, is the whole reason we do this podcast. And that's what she's trying to do to, like, trap her in this, like, warm, hazy past. You know, she's being overburdened by material possessions, and she has to overcome that, like, lure of this rose-colored glasses of the past. So intellectually, I thought it was really interesting. It's very different, and so I understand why, like, yeah, it yeah. does. It's also coming after that other momentum-breaking scene where she's having the whole eyes-wide-shut ballroom dance. <laughs> And then, um, and then you come to this. So maybe it's right. just a scene too many. But I kind of liked it. It's jarring. I can't give a better evaluation. That was perfect. That was exactly what I'm going for. It's a really unique scene. I do want to throw out there all the wrong turns Sarah takes in the labyrinth are to the right. So every time when she does something, oh. she goes right, uh, which is always the wrong way to go. Which I think is just trying to be ironic writing. Good little Easter egg. Little Easter egg. Um, the production designer, Elliot Scott, said that the biggest challenge in the movie was building the forest that the group goes through on the way to the castle. The notes from the film say the entire forest required 120 truckloads of tree branches, 1,200 turfs of grass, 850 pounds of dried leaves, 133 bags of lichen, and 35 bundles of mossy old man's beard. I think we call it witch's beard out here when you go hiking. It's the same kind of stuff. Oh, wow. So, hard scene. Also, speaking of scenery slash Easter eggs, apparently, did you know this? David Bowie's face is hidden throughout different scenes in the movie. No, I did not know that. What? Where? So if you go back and watch it, there's many scenes where like in the wall or like on a tree. And then even in Sarah's bedroom, there's like a um, some photos, I think, tacked up to her mirror or it's a newspaper. And one of the people in like one of the little uh, stories in the newspaper, the photo is David Bowie. No. But then also like you'll just see images of his face all throughout the movie. It's really crazy, but like an interesting little Easter egg, like the whole idea that Bowie's always kind of watching over Sarah. That's fascinating. I didn't know it's that. Wild, Actually, huh? really good catch. Good catch. 
Uh, speaking of good catches, I have just a few more little tidbits here littered around the floor of the labyrinth, but I'm eager to see if you have anything else. Of course, Labyrinth is awesome for its practical effects. It does have a lot of amazing set building and stunts and things like that. But it also has uh, the first time a realistic CGI animal was ever used in a movie. Oh, yeah. The right. owl in the beginning that flies around. Yeah. Animators Larry Yeager and Bill Croyer of Digital Productions uh, made that owl. So that was a big moment. I guess you wouldn't have Jurassic Park. Uh, without the animated owl? I don't know. I don't know. Who knows? One thing leads to another. <laughs> the, final, the, to another. the final, like, battle scene. I don't have a lot to say about the battle scene where they're all running around and Ludo is singing rocks through the city. But I did always like the line where the cannon fires and it turns out the cannonball is also a little goblin. And he, like, mm. sticks to a wall and he goes, like, I hit something? Yes? No? Like, I always thought that was also comedy gold. I love that very much. It's an odd scene that goes on for a long time. It's way too long. What, what are, what's going on here? It's a lot. And and I guess, you know, to also get into this scene, we haven't really paid too much. I mean, he's, he comes later in the movie, but Sir Didymus and Ambrosius... Um, yeah, God, we haven't even talked about them yet! ...are an interesting ad. I will just say there's nothing more annoying in movies where babies cry way too much or dogs bark way too much. And maybe for somebody who that's their common life experience, it's okay. But a lot of characters repeat themselves a lot. I can't tell you how many times Ludo commented on how stinky the swamp is. We're like, yeah, we get it, buddy. It's gross. (laughs) We get it. And he says the – I can't remember what the word is. Stinky. He says like the same word over and over. At the beginning of the movie, Sarah says I can't like 9,000 times. I counted. That is not an exaggeration. No. (laughs) She says it a lot. Sir Didymus is always screaming. There's a lot of stuff in this movie that is a little grating if you're just wanting to watch a movie. But like have you ever watched a movie also where like a fire alarm is going off way too much and you're like – I get it. You're actually annoying the crap out of me. Like, yeah. this is obnoxious. Yeah, we know there's a fire. It was a little bit like that uh, for some of these scenes. And, and while I appreciated Sir Didymus, I did find him a little less Sir Didymus would have gone a lot farther, I think. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. Less Didymus would have been more. I yeah. agree. 100%. I am hopeful for your commentary on four more little questions that confused the heck out of me in the movie. But speaking of comments, dear listener, the second thing you need to do to get mm. your name entered into a drawing to win Brian Froud's Fairies book is, after you followed us on Instagram, find the post this week with the picture of the book and about this giveaway and leave a comment on that picture. There you go. go. Follow us on Instagram. Comment on the post about this giveaway. This is the easiest labyrinth ever, everybody. If you can't go do this like in the next two minutes, come on. It's easy. Easy peasy lemon squeezy. Show us that you are a labyrinth solving genius. You were the kid that never had to like stop your pencil at an intersection and then sort of like look ahead. You just confidently drew straight to the end of the little puzzle. You got through the maze and you were like, done. Easy. Easy. Speaking of so easy, Chris, Mm. I've got a question for you. What's up? At one point when Sarah's complaining about how hard the labyrinth is to David Bowie, to Mm. Jareth, Jareth says, quote, I ask for so little. Just let me rule you and you can have everything you want. 
Is that really asking for so little, Chris? I do love, first off, that you sounded like Stewie from Family Guy. You can have everything you want. I'll give you a dollop of cool whip. Um, <laughs> I mean, maybe to Jareth, that is a, a small order, but I would say, sure. like, just let me rule you. Like, again, creepy vibes to somebody who probably has a teenage daughter out there is not going to love that, you know, but even without creepy vibe. Creepy vibe. Don't do it. There are three earnest questions that I am confused about. So the movie sort of sets up. She's been rehearsing for some play. Presumably. The play seems very similar to what she's going through with the labyrinth. Mm-hmm. So like, okay, when she went into Toby's room and Toby is crying, did she trip and smash her face into a wall and knock out? Mm. And now she's like imagining the labyrinth mixing with the play she's been rehearsing and she's going to wake up and Toby's back home? Or like, is this all imagined and she's just rehearsing for Toby while she's babysitting and she's bored? Like, what does the play have to do with all this? I mean, I posed an opposite movie synopsis for Neverending Story where Bastion Bucks was just a juvenile delinquent who was just basically breaking all the laws and rules and being a little hobgoblin monster. So maybe what this movie really is, Sarah's mad. She leaves Toby's room and she breaks into her stepmother's liquor cabinet. <laughs> and she just oh, makes herself oh like whatever, you know, you know when you were a kid and you, uh, every different soda flavor, you would just little schnapps, little scotch, sprinkling some dark rum. Yeah, she basically does that. What would that be? A Long Island iced tea of all of the booze <laughs> in the cabinet. And she basically just has some sort of like boozy, drunken uh, Here are fever dream. stickers with happy faces on them. I guess yeah. just, they, they smell nice. Like, I guess I'll just eat this whole sheet of stickers. Oh, what are these mushrooms? Is that from Stepmom's salad? Yeah, and then all of a sudden. <laughs> who's to say? Um, who's to say? That's a very interesting question they obviously don't answer. But no. I have to imagine intentionally they sprinkle these little breadcrumbs, these little, speaking of witches and children's right. fairy tales, they kind of sprinkle that to see if you pick up on it. That's okay. my guess. Maybe this it's great. A, an additional homage to a lot of these stories. Someone's whisked away, you know, did Dorothy imagine that she was an Oz? Right. right? Okay, good. Good point. Good point. Maybe. Similar, Maybe. Similarly, though, this movie ends with a musical dance party in Sarah's yeah. bedroom. Yes. Everyone thought Shrek started this whole idea with dance parties at the end of the movie. But no, it's at Not least even close. Lemon. Yes, come on. But the people who are in the room is a mixture of like her friends from the movie and goblins who very much tried for two hours to kill her. And steal her half-brother. Right! And so I feel like I missed the resolution of the Goblin City War. Like, I thought she just got Toby back, but like, did she kill Jareth and all these goblins are free now? Like, why are the murder goblins now her friends in her bedroom? That's a wonderful question that I don't think is answerable, unless maybe somebody found some rationale that we're not familiar with. But yeah, it is odd. You would think it would be all of the friends, but like... The people who are just asking to rip your head off are now going to be like celebrating with you. I wouldn't invite that guy to a party is all I'm saying. Right? No. I don't know. I can't answer it. It's just, it's crazy. Fair what enough. can I it's say? Fair enough. And my last question of chemistry is sincere because I don't have the answer for it, but I just, I can't figure it out. Chris, what's the message of this movie? What's the lesson you're supposed to take away when the credits roll? I think the most 
important message is that you learn what a oubliette is. <laughs> French torture history. Let's get into it. Can I just tell you, this was a movie that's like, we're going to introduce a word, and then we're going to keep saying it a lot, and then we're going to intrigue the crap out of you, and then we're going to tell you what it is. It was a little <laughs> bit like, oh, welcome to the oubliette, blah, blah, blah. Oh, um, let me uh, hoggle-splain this to you. Oh, let you don't need to you. Oh, by the way, you're in the oubliette. Oh, I think I failed to mention what an oubliette is. It's a secret creepy dungeon. Yeah. That we've put a, a, once again, I cannot stress this enough, an underage girl into this creepy dungeon with a creepy old man that she just saw going to the bathroom. I'm just, I, this is, it's crazy. <laughs> and it's only accessible through a trap door. This is like. Right. Uh, yeah. What's, what's Gone Girl? Is that the, no, that's a different movie. Gone Girl. What's the Morgan Freeman one where all the girls are being kidnapped and put in the thing? Oh, something Bones? Lovely Bones. Is the this Lovely, lovely bones. bones? Yes. Anyway, don't also look up that movie, but the point is, <laughs> this movie really wanted you to know what an oubliette is. That's, I think, the biggest takeaway message I had, because I did learn it, and now I'm talking about it so everyone else knows what it is, because I heard the word, and I was like, ooh, I'm going to go look it up, but then the movie proceeded to explain it to me for a good two minutes. Oh, yeah. It got hoggle-splained. Yeah. Other than that, wow. I mean, you you come out of big where you're like, hmm, maybe it's good to be a kid. Maybe yeah. adult life should be for adults, and kid life is for kid life. You know, have your friends, have your teenage experiences. This movie, there's a wonderful question. I guess right? party with your kidnappers? <laughs> em em embrace your stalkers? Is that what it is? I really was like, on rewatch and finished, and I was like, okay, is it about friendship? Like, because it's always like, if you need us, if you need us, like, oh, like yeah. can you always rely on your friends? But we're also going to bring your enemies with us. Like, right, exactly. Or, it's, yeah. or, you know, was it like... I don't know. Don't be such a whiny pain in the butt. Like, be thankful for what you've got. You know, don't wish your half brother to be stolen. I just couldn't take away what, like, the real message was. I no, don't get it, it. It would be like in Wizard of Oz, since we're making that reference, where, like, not only, you know, the lion and the woodsman and the scarecrow come back, but then also the tree comes back and is chucking apples at her. The flying monkeys come back and start yes. skittering around. The evil witch is back and <laughs> poppies. You know, all that poppies. kind of stuff. Like Dorothy doesn't want them there. That is an uninvited house guest. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. You ask great questions and I wish I and had don't have answers. <laughs> great answers for it, but not to be had, I think. Here's what we could give a shot with. Maybe we can go figure some of this out. So I heard a rumor what rumor? The power of the rumor. What, um, <laughs> that uh, Coach has a bottle of Jim Beam under his desk that's not okay. locked up. Where's this going? <laughs> and we could pull a Sarah Jennifer Connolly. Okay. We could go to the unlocked liquor cabinet and see if we can find some more answers of where Labyrinth went after the 80s uh, in contemporary culture after we go uh, go to lunch. Let's go to lunch. Uh, I heard there's peach fruit cups on the <laughs> menu today, I think is what I heard. Ooh, I heard they're serving oubliette. <laughs> I don't know what it is yet. They've said it's it 19 times. Delicious French cuisine. Let's go check it out and see what oubliette tastes like. 
Beware and warning, this book is different from other books. You and you alone are in charge of what happens in this story. If that brings back childhood memories of reading past your bedtime and keeping your fingers positioned just so in order to go back and cheat death, then you are part of the Choose Your Own Adventure Generation, the fourth best-selling children's book series of all time. Since 2006, Choose Your Own Adventure has relaunched copies of original 80s bestsellers as well well as all new books, tabletop games, and graphic novel adaptations of the famous game book series. If you decide to use all of your numerous talents and much of your enormous intelligence to introduce interactive game books to a new generation, visit CYOA.com. Use code 80SHIGH for 20% off your first order. That's code 80SHIGH. Jim Henson, creator of The Muppets. George Lucas, creator of Star Wars, take you on a dazzling adventure. <laughs> There's nothing to be afraid of. Turn back, Sarah, before it's too late. She must be stopped. Labyrinth, rated PG, starts Friday at a specially selected theater near you. I love that we're promoting Choose Your Own Adventure, that they are our sponsor. Can I just say, like, I'm still basking in the glow that we are partnered with the best sponsor an 80s podcast could ever hope for. It's very cool. And the ad is so pertinent on this episode because, of course, Choose Your Own Adventure, you're choosing different directions to go in a story and a tale. A little bit of a maze. Sometimes you have to go backwards and see what the other path would branch off to. Everything is connecting everybody. Sometimes you have unfortunate relationships with adults in the books. I feel like this is on theme topic. Oh my gosh. Here we are in contemporary culture, Ben. Are we getting any answers to these riddles of what came after? We're going to try. Okay. We're going to do our best. I don't know how well it's going to go, but let's see. I want to start by focusing on Sarah and Jennifer Connelly. So after this movie... Jennifer Connelly actually goes on to have a uh, pretty respectable career. She's in The Rocketeer. She's in a movie that has roughly the same vibe and feel as Labyrinth uh, called Requiem for a Dream. Very Very similar. If if you really like Labyrinth, go check out Requiem. I'm kidding, guys. Don't watch this movie. It is a dark movie. Oh my gosh. I might even argue the darkest movie I've ever seen. You need therapy after Requiem for a Dream. I'm going to say it's darker than... Fight Club. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. Like, Fight Club is grim, but I think this is that movie's even yeah, grimmer. It's super oof. heavy. She's in that, like, weird Hulk that happened at that one time. Wait, before is the that whole the reel. Edward Norton one? No, no, no. Ang Lee. She's in Ang Lee's Hulk. Oh, uh, okay. She's in The Day There Stood Still as uh, the one with Keanu Reeves. She was just in Top Gun Maverick. Oh. She's in A Beautiful Mind. But the thing, like, she's in these big tentpole movies, but she's always, like, tertiary mm. character. Like, I don't know if you found this, but, like, her main notoriety seems to be this film, that she's in this movie, and I just don't know what happened to her afterwards. Like, do you have any insight into Connolly's career? I mean, I can't say why. I can't say if it, you know, was by choice or, you know, those were the roles she was able to land. You know, it's it's so mercurial, right? There's people where you're like, why is this yeah. person and everything? They're not talented. And there's other people who are like, they have so much talent. What happened to them? And it could be any number of reasons. So, but no, I don't, I don't know specifically with her. Okay. Well, we've kind of talked about this. So the, the Nerdist in 2016 wrote like an anniversary piece about the labyrinth. And they talked about how, like, this movie actually resonates really well with a female audience over the almost 40 years since it came out. Okay. And it's because, like, sort of at the time, 
how rare girls are in the center of a heroic adventure fantasy. True. For many girls, I guess, coming out of the 80s, this was, in a way, for some, their Star Wars, which I know is a big claim to make, but the rarity of, again, a heroine at a fantasy adventure is is unique. Henson never commented on it, but his son, Postmortem, commented on it, and he said, it's just what the story was. I don't know if my dad set out to make a heroine fantasy or not. He said, I know that when I made Muppet Treasure Island, I wasn't trying to make a boy's movie. I was trying to make a cool story that was really entertaining. Does Muppet Treasure Island resonate more with boys than girls? Probably, because it's more about the coming of age of a boy during puberty. And Labyrinth is about the coming of age of a girl during puberty. So that's what Henson's son claimed. But it it doesn't sound like there's a clear intention, as there kind of was with, like, Alien, to make this, like, a heroine tale of victory. True. And I think that's like even, it's hard to remember that even until maybe the last less than 10 years, probably, where that's really come to the forefront of like, yeah, we need to be really freaking intentional about this. Like there's like a, a, a very common agreed upon thought that we need to diversify our heroes in any number of ways, right? Yeah. And one of them yeah. being gender. And so like in the 80s, that's not a very common place Again, as you said, intentional. Like it, it can happen, but it's not often done. Like, hey, we have a lot of these movies about X. Let's do one for Y. Other than girls don't watch He Man, we need to make money off girls. Right, we'll make right. She-Ra, She-Ra. You know, <laughs> it's if it's for selling toys, then the toy company is definitely going to do it, but not for the right reasons. Which is, we need more role models for young girls. It's more, we need cash. Now, before I get into the movie's specific life after the eighties. I told you we were going to try and get into David Bowie's pants. So here we go. Have you ever heard of areaology? No. So in the adorable early rough years of the internet, we're talking like mid to late 90s. You know, there's GeoCities and Angel Fire, all these websites you can build on your own. Oh, yeah. So it's still out there. You can find it with the Wayback Machine is areaology, which is an entire website dedicated to the study and the worship of David Bowie's codpiece in the labyrinth. Oh, good Lord. Shout out to show follower and friend Kat, who first told me about that decades ago. Uh, <sighs> and I've, you know, therapy has been going well ever since I consumed that website. I am almost, I'm almost back to normal and functional again. Oh my goodness. So concerning. Wow. So, like I said, when this movie hit the screen, didn't do too great domestically. But it's really when it comes to home video is when Labyrinth succeeds. Okay. I'm not going to go through every single iteration, but it comes out on home video real quick. So it comes out in 87 on VHS, Betamax, and Laserdisc. 1999, it goes out on DVD with a making of documentary. I will politely try and say that this is the worst making of documentary of any movie I've ever seen. Oh, how so? Because there is no audio explaining what you're watching. It's filming Hmm. the behind the scenes, like you're watching people practice and they're setting up and doing lines, but it never cuts to like interviewing David Bowie about what he thought about the movie or Jim Henson saying what he was thinking or like a narrator talking about what's happening on screen. It's just 90 minutes of like behind the scenes footage, which is interesting on one hand, but like also doesn't really explain what's happening. (laughs) 
It feels like early days of behind the scenes where they didn't quite know how to, I mean, now, you know, it's so much more elaborate because we understand the concept and it's had a chance to kind of grow and evolve. But that's like early days where they're just like, turn the camera on and we'll do stuff and blah, blah, blah. Like, but there's no like interview with people that has like B-roll of what they're talking about. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. All right. So it feels like at least what I'm going to get into here is like the early aughts is when it starts to really earn its cult following. It's like takes 20 years. People start to get into it. Okay. There's a million re-releases on DVD and Blu-ray, all with new features all the time, all these different years. If you do want to get your hands on a good Labyrinth 3 release, the best one is just from a couple of years ago. So in 2021, a 35th anniversary limited edition Labyrinth was released on Blu-ray and 4K Blu-ray. It's designed that like the case it comes in is Sarah's book in the film. And it's got okay. all the different making of documentaries, nice. 25 minutes of deleted scenes. There's a whole bunch. I'm not going to go through every quote of like all the different publications, but it's around the same time that like a lot of these different newspapers and magazines start to change their tune on what Labyrinth was. Okay. I do love since 1997, there is an annual two-day event called the Labyrinth of Jareth Masquerade Ball. Okay. Uh, it, it moves around all the time, but it's been in San Diego and Hollywood and LA. So there's like a labyrinth-themed masquerade ball. If you want to find yourself in that creepy, confusing moment. Thanks, but no thanks. So... 180 here is what happens. A writer for the Chicago Tribune comes out and says, Labyrinth is dazzling. It's a real masterpiece of puppetry and special effects, an absolutely gorgeous children's fantasy movie. In 2008, the American Film Institute nominates Labyrinth for inclusion in its top 10 fantasy films of all time. Wow. 2012, Empire does a four-page spread on Labyrinth as part of their Muppet special covering all the Muppets. It's ranked 72nd in Empire's The 80 Best 80s Movies. So it barely makes the list. It's 26th on Time Out's 50 Best Fantasy Movies. Telegraph names it one of the 77 best kids films of all time. Hmm. And today it's got an audience score of 86% on Rotten Tomatoes and 8.4 out of 10 on Metacritic. Wow. Like it really turned the corner, which I wonder is why. shocking. Other than nostalgia, I really wonder why. You know, it's not the first movie this season we're going to do that when it came out, didn't do so great. And then on retrospect, critics later were like, this was genius. But I feel like a lot of those movies, I can see exactly why. Like, it's yeah. like it didn't find its audience in the theater, but it's still a really good movie. I'm not saying this is not a really good movie. I'm just saying, like, I wonder what beyond just the nostalgia of it or the the Jim Henson-ness of it is maybe what it was. I mean, you know, he died a pretty young guy sure. and didn't get to go on and have a career into his 80s to keep producing, you know, all sorts of stuff. I don't know. So if you're like Chris and me, and you're like, what happened after the dance party in Sarah's room? There are a gazillion continuing stories out there for you to yeah. learn what keeps going on in the labyrinth. Yeah. They all sort of start around 2006, all the way up to like this year. There's oh, comic wow. book sequels. There are more short stories that focus in like Hoggle and the Worm, Sir Didymus's Grand Day. There's a Labyrinth 30th anniversary special that has seven new short stories that talk about different characters in the Labyrinth. It's sort of like how like the Star Wars world has started to break apart individual characters and you get like, you get like the Grogu, Han Solo movie, the Han yeah. Solo movie. Yeah. like that's yeah. kind of what they've done with the Labyrinth. There's even like a Jareth prequel that talks about like how Jareth became the Goblin King. 
Okay. Which actually I'm sort of curious because it starts in 1790s Venice. The owl plays in a lot more. I'm actually, I'm not going to lie. I'm actually a little bit curious. Okay. Thank God there are more books specifically about that ball, the masquerade, and why that's existing. And I'm hoping it's like an event planner. It's like a, it's like a stressed out wedding event planner. And it's like her just like getting these bizarre requests from Jareth. He's like, I, I want 35 green M&Ms strung from the ceiling with pearls raining down in a goblin's mouth. And she's like, how am I going to do this? What is Let happening? Let me rule you. I will be your slave. But here's what's terrifying to me. So you remember like... Was it the Twilight book series were based on fan, Harry Potter fan fiction, and they evolved into proper books? Wait, was Fifty Shades a fanfic of Twilight, but she oh, changed it maybe and I have it reversed. Like I have D it werewolf vampired it? Yes. If you're like really into writing sexy crypto fanfic, like just let us know. I mean, you know, why not? Like, we're here to support your art. You're here to support also, our art. Also, please borrow from the labyrinth because they've borrowed from everybody else. <laughs> so you can borrow from the borrower. I mean, let's be clear. There's a lot of labyrinth fanfic out there. I am most certain of it. The areology alone. But let's go on. What, so what that's where got? I'm coming. That's the point I'm oh, trying to are- make <laughs> is on fanfiction.net. Oh, there boy. are over 10 thousand unique stories people have written in the labyrinth world you know what i like to celebrate creativity in all its forms even though sometimes i'm like not my cup of tea and i give it a little sass on there i'm glad that people have found a creative outlet and there are people who want to consume it go have fun everybody i will not be (laughs) you won't catch me there i won't be there but enjoy yourselves and please not anything super creepy. I mean... No, come on. Be respectful. Something you would happily read aloud to your grandmother at Thanksgiving. Okay? That's where we draw the line. Oh, boy. So, Chris, did you read anything? Are we ever going to get Labyrinth 2, Electric Boogaloo? My understanding is, like a lot of stuff we talk about here, attempts, discussions, attachments, but no actual movement. Is that accurate? Pretty much. So Henson never wanted to. Remember, like, Henson got dogged terribly in the 80s. He's like, I'm never going to do a feature film again. But the DVD sales of Labyrinth were so good that Jim Henson Company and Sony Pictures were like, hmm, maybe we should do this. And they even had a working title, Curse of the Goblin King. Mm. And this is nuts. I hope you go look this up. This is crazy. So the decision was made not to do a direct sequel, but to just do another fantasy film in the same kind of vibe. And they actually brought in freaking Neil Gaiman. Wow. To write it, and artist Dave McKean, and to do something similar to Labyrinth. And the product is 2005's Mirror Mask. Have you ever heard of this movie? No. I'm going to send you the trailer. It is nuts. I have not seen this movie, but it's one of the weirdest movie trailers I've ever seen in my life. I actually would have preferred if we got a Labyrinth sequel versus this movie. I'm not sure I could sit through this movie. Okay, I am just looking at still images, and it is weird. It just looks like really bad CG all throughout it. It's really rough. Yeah, what is going on? This is so bizarre. So in 2016, Brian Froud, again, our creative artist who came up with all these the goblin looks in the kingdom, said he would love to have a stage musical version of Labyrinth with live puppetry and special effects. And in 2018, it seemed like it was happening. Two years later, Brian Henson came out and said the Henson Company was working on a stage show of it. He said the production was not intended for Broadway, but could potentially take place on London's West End. I don't know if it ever happened or not. I couldn't find it. Maybe that big Spider-Man Broadway production overtook it. I I don't know what happened. 
The too many Spider-Men where everyone was like breaking their necks. Right. Oh boy. But it was announced in 2016 that a reboot was in development. One of the cursed, very dangerous words of the 80s. Uh, Nicole Perlman was attached as a screenwriter. But as of January 25th, Perlman confirmed on Twitter uh, that while she's working on a Labyrinth project, it was not a remake or a reboot, but a sequel. Ooh. Fede Alvarez was signed on to direct it with co-writer Jay Basu. Henson's daughter, Lisa Henson, was signed on as producer. As of October 18th, they had a completed script. And then two years later, the director stepped down. As of May 2020, Scott Derrickson, known for directing Doctor Strange, was announced as the director. Maggie Levin joined him for writing the script. And then Brian Henson was set as the executive producer, along with Lisa Henson. A year later, February 2021, Jennifer Connelly states publicly that she'd had conversations about coming into the Labyrinth sequel, but didn't know what was going on. And that's where it got dropped. The last thing we heard was two years ago, Jennifer Connelly said, we've talked about it. I don't know what they're doing. So you listeners, if you've heard anything about the Labyrinth sequel, reach out to us on 80s High Podcast on Instagram or shoot us an email. I'd actually be kind of curious where this sits because I can't find anything online. But maybe you, dear listener, are in the biz. Let us know. Let us know what the, the project status is. I have two things left for contemporary culture. This is a longer quote, but in a 2016 interview with Brian Henson, he was asked if he thought there was opposition from Hollywood in producing fantasy films. So here's what Brian had to say. It sometimes seems like there is. My father moved the headquarters of the company to Hollywood about a year before he died in 1990, and in some ways that hurt us to produce more fantasy. It was easier to produce fantasy when we were in New York and London-based because Hollywood doesn't generate fantasy very well. When you pitch them something, they say, oh, that's great, but if you thought about remaking this other thing, it's a little bit harder outside of Hollywood. When we made the sci-fi TV series Farscape, that was more of the world building that went into making fantasy, but it's still not the same exactly. We're working hard to get back into the fantasy area, but it's tough working out of Hollywood. The whole thrust of the development for things like The Lord of the Rings was through New Zealand, and Harry Potter movies were all based out of the UK. So it is a bit tough, but yes, I think we should be doing more than we've been doing. So Henson basically says, like, Hollywood doesn't make fantasy. You got to go to UK and New Zealand to get fantasy movies made, but uh, not down out here in LA. I will say, Farscape, delightful show, canceled too soon, amazing puppets slash makeup, and yeah, it was very visually stunning. Great, isn't the whole spaceship a living being in that? It's like it is. Yeah, Moya is a uh, Moya, kind of like a space whale in a way. Uh, That's awesome. It's a living ship. Yeah, it's a it's a really creative, well done show. It's a bummer it got canceled. A little I too mean, soon. A lot of I mean, those space they did the whole ones. we made a movie to wrap it up, kind of like Firefly sure, deal, but you sure. know. Absolutely. So you had one more thing for a contemporary culture. So speaking of puppetry, did you see that the Hoggle puppet was found somewhat recently? Oh no. And I'm sure it's in like totally high quality condition and it's not terrifying or nightmare fuel at all. I'm gonna drop a little picture into our chat. Oh god, I do have to sleep tonight. Do I And I, I want you to, to to paint a word picture. Oh my God. (laughs) For our listeners. Oh, that. Oh my God. (laughs) Okay. That is. What does this remind you of? Like, okay, what did we do this summer? The body. It's, it's, (laughs) it's the found kid in Stand By Me. Oh my God. It's like Five Nights at Freddy's to me. Here's, here's what I'm going to say. I'm trying to work on this. 
You can tell it was Hoggle, but what it looks like is if the Jim Henson Company was in charge of all the walkers in The Walking Dead. (laughs) That is monstrous. That's going on Instagram this week for sure. Listeners, look at your own caution, but if you just type Hoggle Puppet now, you'll get this photo come up. There's a couple different ones, but you'll know exactly which one we're talking about. It's sad because, of course, this is probably for people who are listening and love this movie, a very beloved character, uh, but time has not been kind. No. But you know what time is kind to? You, dear listener, who now are about to unlock the third secret to get your name <gasps> into a drawing to win Brian Froud's My goodness. Fairy's Tales. And Ben, how much are they going to pay for this? Straight up zero dollars. So yeah. What? Here's what's going to happen. We're going to get everyone who participates. I'm going to drop all those names in a hat. I'm going to mix it around. And then I'm going to reach far, far, far down. Wait, are helping hands going to- Yes, the uh, helping hands. (laughs) And I'll pull out a name. And then we're going to send you a little message on Instagram. You tell us the address where we should send this book, and you're going to get the book. Perfect. And Chris and I are going to sign the inside cover. You're going to you're going to get the hosts of what? 80s High, our amazing penmanship. So follow us on Instagram. Find any post on our feed about this giveaway. Comment on it. And in that comment, tag three of your friends that they should come check out 80s High as well. And uh, you'll be entered into the drawing for the book. One entry per fan. Easy peasy. And we're not going to spam those people. No. Uh, Chris, speaking of the labyrinth, I've got three crystal balls rotating here in my hand. I think it is my real hand. It looks like it. If it is a stunt hand, it, it is a very well done <laughs> illusion. <laughs> and they're, they're balancing in my hands here, and they're making me think that we, too, should go on to our next and final class, math class, to see the balance of labyrinth and how it holds up today. Lovely. I can't wait. I'll see you there. What I found in the hallway, I actually rode that crazy goblin murder vehicle that you see in the movie. Like, it's the wheel with all the knives and axes that are spinning. You know, the children's movie vehicle. I rode Ambrosius again, but this time it was the puppet version of it, not the actual dog. So it was like the more close-up scene with the, you know, some of the stunts. Fantastic. With the Didymus on the back. So that's what I did. Just straight up Didymus. Chris, this has been a wild ride. I'm so excited. You... You've played the game close to the chest. You were much more overt in NeverEnding Story <laughs> that you hadn't seen before about I how sure you was. felt about it. But I feel like you've played a good hand of poker in the episode this week. And now I'm very curious, bringing it home, how do you feel about Labyrinth in 2023? Well, I'm just making this connection. You know how there's some movies that people love and you watch it and you're like, I love quoting it and talking about it more than I ever want to watch it again. <laughs> okay. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do, do you have a totally. movie like that? For me, it's Austin Powers. I don't think Austin Powers is funny, but I love to quote it. And there's like it's hilarious It's got great moments. lines. Totally. I enjoyed us talking about this movie 11 billion times more than watching it. Okay, 11 billion, also an exaggeration. I mean, billion. I would say this. I do – personally think this movie is more about nostalgia than it is its staying power. Yeah. And it's continued relevance in 2023. Although apparently all these people writing fanfic have proven me wrong. Yeah. But I think like maybe if I grew up watching it, the music, the puppets, the story would hit differently. 
I'll just say like the music, none of it really captured me. None of the music, it was like, yeah. oh, this is an earworm I want to listen to. I was just like, mm, okay. It felt more to me like hitting, you know, coming to this mid 40s, 2023, it felt more like a an aimless showcase of puppets with a loose plot to string it together. <laughs> and now I realize that's exactly what it was. That is exactly yeah. how it was written. Yeah. Uh, so that tracks. Uh, the puppets look great, especially Hoggle. I mentioned that the facial expressions, truly impressive. And to know that like 20 people had to make that happen and make it look flawless is something that you can appreciate. You know, the scene at the beginning where the goblins are like talking to the screen was a really uh, unexpected and funny twist. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like it's just this cutaway you're not expecting and tonally it's very different from what we've seen so far. So I really enjoyed that. And of course, the helping hands Again, my favorite scene, very creative in how that was done. And even those creatures overturning the stones, that, that gave me a little chuckle. Yeah. But I will say none of the characters really connected for me. I think that yeah. was my trouble with this movie is like feeling a love or connection to the character. Like most of them in some way were either annoying or whining or screeching or growling. As I mentioned, sometimes the same lines over and over. I don't want all my characters to be grating. Like a lovable character to me, like that little worm. The little worm so was delightful, cute. right? <laughs> Come inside and meet the missus. I love right. that little guy. So I had a hard time connecting, but also the weird thing is like I found myself liking the puppet characters far more than the human char- oh, counterparts yeah. on the yeah. screen. Granted, not a lot of them, but that was just kind of a jarring thing for me. And I don't know, like maybe – David Bowie just wasn't doing it for me. But again, the the music wasn't quite connecting in the way that I feel like everyone's like, Magic Dance, such a great song. And I was just like, it was okay. But it's anyway, technically a so- It's technically a song. I clearly did not have the visceral reaction like I did with Neverdine Story. But I will say I don't see myself revisiting this maze anytime soon or maybe at any time. Um, but... I am glad I had the chance to experience this piece of childhood nostalgia that clearly looms large from the 80s into 2023. Man, I wish I had a count of episodes where I just said in math class, ditto. Because this, this is like a ditto. <laughs> okay. Instance. I do, before I get into my own evaluation, I do want to say that a big shout out to classmate Megan, whom in our latest pop quiz, we did ask, how do you think the labyrinth holds up in 2023? And her response is the longest input on anything we've ever gotten from any classmate in four years. It it is the equivalent of probably two-thirds of a page in a Word document. She wrote an essay. I love it for English class. It's a great essay. And Megan, I would normally read it word for word, but we have largely all agreed, uh, you and Chris and I together. So thank you for putting so much thought and heart into it. And it's good to know that you and all of us have been paying attention to the same class. It's great. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say, like, I would love to watch Labyrinth now sitting next to, like, a six-year-old or okay. a seven-year-old. Like, I feel like that movie would hit for, like, a right before you start to hit double digits for a kid. But even, like, a lot of movies from the 80s, even for a little kid's movies, there's a lot of horror in this movie that I'm like, I don't know how this got away with kids in the 80s because kids today, this is like weird. Very questionable. Like you said, the relationship between Jareth and Sarah, a lot of confusing undertones there. Yeah. Not sure how I really feel about that. Yeah. I think you make a great point. Like, I mean, yes, I'm rooting for Sarah solely because I don't think a baby should be abandoned in the Goblin Kingdom. 
But otherwise, I'm not really rooting for anyone. Like, Ludo seems like Mm. a heartfelt character who's just lost and confused. Sure. There's not a lot of character development that makes me really connect with anybody that much. Right. Yeah, I think you make great points about the music. But the big shining light for me is, like I say in so many episodes that we do, just an incredible time of practical effects. Like, what an amazing time in creativity and artistry and workmanship to make all these puppets, Mm. to come up with these crazy ways of, like, the helping hands. And although it's super crazy, the fire gang that, like, dances and their bodies come apart and they come back together and there's no CG with that. Right. It's like black velvet and puppetry and camera mixes. Like, the practical work that went into this movie is truly incredible and groundbreaking for the time. And, like... Set the stage for a lot. And that should be, like, respected and honored. That's an amazing work. And, of course, Jim Henson is at the helm of making that happen. So, like, I love that. Would I watch Labyrinth again? Yes. But only because there's someone around me who, like, has never seen it, particularly a child, that I would, like, want to experience it for the first time through someone else's eyes. Sure. But this would not be on my, like, constant rotation of rewatch. Sure. There's sort of a message that I feel like connects that there are people you can rely on when you're in when you're in need. And so to quote Labyrinth to our class of 80s high, should you need us, Chris and I will always be here for you. Cue David Bowie, cue spinning goblets, cue flying owl, roll credits. You know what? Maybe I do have one actual message now that you mentioned that quote is when somebody tries to manipulate you, maybe it's a creepy older guy who's trying to catfish and groom you, and you say (laughs) back to this creepster, you have no power over me. Oh, yeah. There you go. So maybe that's the takeaway, if nothing else. I think those are the two takeaways. We can say emphatically, they are stated outright in the movies. They are. Thematically, maybe don't get hit too firmly on the head. But, I mean, that was the key to finally have her overcome Jareth. So, there you go. That's my earnest answer at the at – the, right before the bell rings. I got you the answer right. So, partial ding credit ding. to Chris. Turn in your – don't forget your homework. It's like the science <laughs> teacher in Gremlins before he gets eaten. There you go. Um, that was perfect. Thank you so much, sir, for going on this adventure. Having not seen Labyrinth before, I always like it. When we do one of these shows where like one of us has experienced a thing that yeah. hasn't, it's very good lenses. You're not tainted by rose-colored glasses. Absolutely. One final reminder to our listeners. You can win this giant, beautiful coffee table book by Brian Froud, the artistic mind behind the whole world of the labyrinth. Just follow us on Instagram at 80s High Podcast. Find one of our posts that's about the giveaway this week. Comment on that post and tag three of your friends, and your name will be entered in a drawing. And we'll mail the book off to you. Toot sweet. Lovely. With that, Christopher, what do our listeners need to prepare their bodies, minds, and souls for on the next episode of 80s High? Yeah, this is going to be another one that I think is uh, a bit of a cult classic. And it might be one that you're either like, oh my gosh, yes, or what the heck? I need to listen and find out what this thing is. Yes. And also thematically, we're going to stick with mazes, dungeons, I dare say oubliettes, uh, (laughs) setting off on a quest. I want to revisit one of my favorite board games from my childhood, also filled with goblins, by the way, but also skeletons and mummies and gargoyles and zombies and dark mages. And a gang of trusty heroes who must delve the darkest dungeons and brave the gnarliest traps. Our fair barbarian, 
our fair dwarf elf and wizard <laughs> facing off against the evil forces of Zargon. A game so wonderful, it'll have you shouting, Brood Sood! <laughs> Brood Sood! And if you don't know what that joke is, you'll have to listen to the episode to find out. That's right, everybody. If you don't have any clue what I'm talking about, I won't drag this out. On the next episode of 80s High, we're going to go back to the board game inspired by Dungeons & Dragons itself, D&D, to introduce young kids to story-based gaming, to tabletop gaming. I'm talking about the one and only Hero Quest. Yeah! I know we've mentioned this before on our like classic 80s board games episode. I'm sure it's come up at some other point in time, but I was like, we can't get out of season four without me finally dedicating an episode to Hero Quest. And the fun thing is, a bit of a spoiler, Ben and I have gotten to play this game together already, like the full campaign. Yes. So we're going to have we're a ready. lot of like personal stories on top of, I don't even know where this game came from. I don't know a lot of its backstory and how it came to be. So I'm, once again, we're going to learn along with you. And teach the class. And I'm this very, excited. very honestly may be some of the most extensive homework we've ever done for ADSI. We've played the whole game. That's true. Tens and tens and tens of hours. Absolutely. So grab your broadswords, grab your armor, grab your magic rings, because we're going into the dungeons, Ben, on the next episode of 80s High. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for listening to 80s High Podcast by Ben and Chris. Our theme song is by Greg Reed with vocals by Chad Bumford. Show artwork is by Alex Goddard at alexgoddarddesign.com. If you like the show, please support us by passing a note to a friend in your next class. Also, you can rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help spread the rumor. Stay radical.